0: I was wrong, and I'm sorry. Two of the hardest things to say in the English language, and, and yet two of the most powerful things that we can say. A pastor named Keith Stewart put those words in a full-page ad and ran them in a local newspaper. And he said that having done that changed his life, they changed his congregation, and over time, they were used to impact thousands and thousands of people around the world. Uh, let me give you a little bit of his background. Keith Stewart founded a church called Spring Creek in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas. The church, over 28 years, grew from a handful of people to about 2,500. That's You can tell it's a U.S. church when they do that. They just like to grow them big in Texas. Right? Over time, though, Pastor Stewart said he became convinced that their particular Brand, if you'd like, of Christianity had very little to do with building up the kingdom of God. It felt just like one more expression of baby boomer meism, to use his expression. And so one week, several years ago, the church takes out a full page ad in the Dallas Morning News, and this is what the ad said We were wrong. We followed trends when we should have been following Jesus. We told others how to live, but we didn't listen ourselves. We live in a land of plenty, denying ourselves nothing while ignoring our neighbors who actually have nothing. We sat on the sidelines while AIDS ravaged Africa. We were wrong, and we're sorry. Please forgive us. That's all the ad said. And then they just placed at the very bottom the name of the church and a little website address. Pastor Stewart said the apology was not meant to be any kind of gimmick. It wasn't a marketing tool. They had nothing to gain from it except the disdain of the Christian community, and they got a fair bit of that, uh, but possibly restored credibility in the eyes of an unbelieving community. Because as he said, the Christian community uh, arguing among themselves situated in a world that's looking in and it's become more and more confused and concerned and critical of what they're seeing going on inside, had had long since turned their back on anything that was being said. Last year, I spent a day with Pastor Stewart and a small group of of leaders that were caucusing and thinking a little bit. and, And the workshop was called The Five Conversions of the Church. So, obviously, this is not original. This is material that we were processing together, and I've been kind of holding on to it for about a year, wondering about when the opportunity would come to be able to talk together, and I thought today would be a good day. So, with your with your order of service in front of you, let's, let's walk through these a little bit. The first conversion is a, conver- a conversion in how we see the poor. Jesus incarnated in every human need. That seems to be the thrust of the New Testament, that we never have to wonder where Jesus is, that he's there in every slum, in every battered woman, in every empty belly. The scripture that's referenced there, Matthew 25, you can turn to that, but some of you won't need to have it in front of you because you'll know the words immediately when you see them. I was hungry, Jesus said, you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me, I was sick, you looked after me, I was in prison, you came to visit. According to Jesus, my fundamental disposition about the most humble of life's essentials, things like food and water and clothing and shelter, They are the most accurate barometer of whether or not God has, in fact, been at work transforming my life. Nothing else even comes close. There is no spiritual high or weekend retreat that can compare to those things. And and Jesus seems to want to be really clear on this issue. That if we succeed at everything else and fail at this, it's like we will have failed utterly. The heart that shares, the, the heart that connects is the heart where Jesus is enthroned. Thus, you could say that that the work of God is better illustrated by a cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus than it is by a cathedral, Or, or that it's more capably seen in a sack lunch given out by one of our young people to somebody hungry living on the streets than it is in the slickest of worship services, or that the the breathtaking beauty of the gospel is on display far more clearly when somebody gives a coat to a newcomer to Canada who had no idea that it's minus 15 in December than it is maybe in the most gifted sermon that's given on a Sunday morning. At least that's the way Jesus seemed to call it. You know the statistics. You know them better than I do, and, and we're constantly inundated by them. Uh, 2.1 billion people lacking access to even the most bare essentials of life, clean, safe water. 4 billion people on planet Earth, the bottom 4 billion, living on less than $2 a day. 6.9 million children under the age of 5 dying every year from largely preventable diseases. Now, here's the thing. Those numbers that... I give and and you hear and you read and I listen to, they're huge, they're systemic, they're mind-numbing, but they're not personal. And they will never become personal unless we have a chance to love just one of those millions. And then they become transformational. The truth is, I mean, extreme poverty, human suffering, unless they wear a name, unless they have an address and a location that we can connect with, they will never really penetrate down deep. More importantly, when you give yourself to somebody in need, Jesus makes the point adamantly that that's how the kingdom of God comes, and that's how it spreads, It's why Jesus taught us again what it means to love. And he made it really simple. Love the Lord your God with heart, mind, soul, and strength. But then love each other in the same way you would love your own flesh. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus put love right there at the center of mission. Poverty needs to have a face. It needs to have an address if it's going to move us to action. So here's my discovery. Uh, I think I discovered it most profoundly when when a young friend who I respect took me on a trip to India. Incidentally, it's the same friend who gave up a promising career in management in order to go work with with the poor at Scott Mission. But it's in India that I learned this. It's love, not need, that fuels mission. It's love, not need, that fuels mission. And you could say, of course, pastor, everybody knows that but I'd say everybody says that, but it's hard to practice it. I mean, think about it. Practically every leader who's trying to mobilize a group of people to respond to some of the needs that are out there is going to take the same tactic. Large charities working among the most vulnerable people in the world are going to send out umpteen different gift catalogs and fundraising letters this time of year, all detailing the devastation brought about by drought and famine and disaster. Nonprofits working in the inner city are going to talk about the impact of record heat or record cold on the city's elderly or the very young. But the message is unmistakable in both cases. The primary motive for giving is need. And there's an element of truth in that. I don't want to deny that. Something devastating happens in the community or happens abroad, People respond to the need. Canadians step up and they give. But sustained, committed, loving solidarity with those who are in the grip of those things, something that's not a reaction to a crisis or through emotional manipulation, that's always fueled by love, not by need. Mission is more. I mean, it's, it's not crisis-driven. It's, it's not reactionary. It's not a gift. It's an investment that we make. And it goes, on. it goes beyond charity. It's kind of, it's what the Bible would say, it's the work of the kingdom. Jesus makes this important link. It's the last thing we'll say about this first conversion. But he teaches that when we see the poor, we see ourselves. That their outer condition is a reflection of our inner condition that everything in the spiritual life begins with a baseline understanding of our own personal poverty. And so Jesus lays out the pathway to blessing. He does it in, in his famous Sermon on the Mount. And he begins with a theology of poverty. Blessed are the poor, he said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 3. It is our poverty, our desperate poverty, that makes us cling to the Father that puts us in touch with God, that makes us less prone to judge, more compassionate, more humble in listening, more patient with other slow learners like me who seem to have taken too long to get to this. Nobody makes any real progress in their spiritual life unless and until they're willing to embrace their own poverty. And that's why it can be said quite accurately that the church needs the poor as much as the poor need the church. That relationship brings about mutual transformation and it recalibrates our mission. Good news for the poor. It's it's mentioned 2,100 different times in the scripture. And this speaks to how we see poverty, the second conversion of the church. More important than the sheer number of verses devoted to the subject is the way that they explain the causes of poverty, over 20 different explanations for why poverty exists in the world. The explanations run the gamut gamut from, from laziness to misfortune, but without a doubt, the mistake people most often make when they read the Bible is by zeroing in on only one explanation to the exclusion of all others, and as a result, the the relatively minor cause of poverty becomes the explanation of poverty. And in the West, in our culture, even in the church, the default explanation for poverty is, guess what? Laziness. Laziness. So of those more than 2,000 verses in God's word that talk about the causes of poverty, Guess how many speak about poverty as the result of somebody's intentional choices or behavior? Nine. Nine out of 2,000. Other explanations cluster around the idea of misfortune. Instead of something they've done, it's something that's been done to them. Misfortune accounts for a lot of poverty in the world, doesn't it? Famine, drought, hurricanes, tornadoes, illness, death. Related to life's great misfortunes, the Bible constantly talks about three groups of people. The poor are sort of given these faces. They are the widow, the orphan, and the alien. And what is it they have in common? The widow has lost what? Husband, taken from her. The orphan has lost what? Parents, taken from the child. An alien has lost what? They've lost their home. But here's what's most fascinating about the scriptures. Even though misfortune is a far more plentiful explanation than pinning poverty merely on the laziness of those who are trapped by it, there's another explanation in the Bible that is offered far more frequently. In fact, it dwarfs all the others by a ratio of 50 to 1. To have a real biblical view of poverty, you have to understand that the taproot of most poverty in Scripture and in the world is oppression. And what do we mean by oppression? Unjust laws, oppressive profit-taking, unfair business practices, overconsumption. It is always immoral for me to make my wealth at the expense of someone else. That's gluttony. And for the record, gluttony is not a sin because it makes me fat. Gluttony is a sin because it means that my consumption comes at the expense of somebody else. That's gluttony. You realize, of course, that the Bible was written in the days of empires. I mean, you had... you had. Egypt and Babylon and, and Rome, and, and, and on it goes, empirical rule. Empires take. That's just the way it was in the ancient world. Incidentally, it's still the same, and we still have empires that take. Throughout Israel's history, even in those those thin swaths of time when when they controlled their own destiny, they had their own king. There were a group of people that were raised up to speak to the plight of people being oppressed by governments, foreign or domestic. They bore a particular name. They had an arduous job. They were the prophets. You wonder about all of those curiously named books at the end of the Old Testament, raised up for a particular purpose to confront poverty, injustice, and oppression. I want to introduce you to just one of them. Jeremiah, If you have your Bibles, Jeremiah 22. We're going to land on verse 16, but let me give you just a little bit of backdrop of the previous two verses. Jeremiah is living and speaking during the, the tail end of the reign of Josiah, one of the brilliant, benevolent, wise, gifted rulers that Israel ever enjoyed in her history. His son was just the opposite. Shalom was wicked, He was oppressive. He lined his own pockets at the expense of his people. I want you to listen to how Jeremiah describes the son, Shalom. This is chapter 22, verses 13 to 15. Woe to him, Shalom, who builds his palace by unrighteousness. What does that look like? He builds his upper rooms through injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them fairly for their labor, He says, I'm going to build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. He makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, decorates it in red. Does it make you a king, Jeremiah says, to have more and more cedar? And then he compares the wicked son to the gifted giving father. And of his father, he says this. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord, to defend the cause of the poor and the needy? If oppression is the main cause of poverty, then that really validates the experience that so many of us have because it means that charity alone will never solve the problem. We need advocacy. We need justice. That's why Jamie McIntosh was here last week. I'm sorry to have missed it. That's, that's why we had Art and Antonio Wormall talking about advocacy on behalf of those who are persecuted. Think, if you'd like, about, about the parable, a familiar one that's been told umpteen times through the years. A man walking alongside the river, and he sees a man in the waters panicking and about to go under. You jump into the river immediately. You pull the man out. Save a life. And No sooner do you get them out than you look further downriver and there's another man struggling and about to go under and you pull them out too. Well, why would you not? I mean, it's a moral imperative. If there's a life to be saved and you can save it, do that. But the moral of the story isn't this just that it's, it's good and important and necessary to rescue those that are, that are in distress. But, and this is Bishop Tutu. Tutu says you can't just be pulling people out of the river. At some point, you need to go upstream and figure out who's pushing them in. That's advocacy. That's justice. Conversion number three has to do with something really parallel to it, and it's the, our understanding of power. Now, we think that the Bible doesn't talk about this, but but really it talks repeatedly, almost continuously, about the use and misuse, the abuse of power, we tend not to see it, and i 'll tell you why we tend to to read the world, including the scriptures, from the top side of power instead of from underneath it. The Bible was written from the underside of power it 's remarkable it 's one of the few books of history that share that that, that incredible quality it 's the story of God forming a people, calling them to himself, a people who spent generations enslaved and martyred, there are people who knew poverty and bitterness and oppression of nation after nation that that held them in their grip. But it's difficult for many of us to make the shift to see the world they saw the world, because we see it from the top down, not from the bottom up. We come, let's be honest, from a place of privilege. We come having known lives of, you may not use it as as a descriptor, but lives of wealth and power, As a society, we've been given so many breaks that others have never received. Again, let me repeat, and we we talked about this, we touched on it during the Treasure Principle Campaign. I know we don't think about ourselves those terms often. We don't describe ourselves because when we compare, we compare ourselves to the uber-wealthy within our own nation. But if you're ever interested, Google this on the web. Google the global rich list and then type in your income. I'll tell you what you'll find. If your household income is over $25,000, you are numbered in the top 10% of the wealthiest people who have ever lived in the world. And if we just take the mean, the average income in, in, in a place like Mississauga, you would find remarkably that you are in the top 2% of the wealthiest citizens of the planet. One of the most scathing indictments of the misuse of power, comes in a place you wouldn't expect to find it. At least I didn't. It comes at the Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite you, if you would, to, to put a thumb in the Bible in First Corinthians, in chapter 11. As you're finding those verses, we're going to look at verses 20 through 29. I just want to set the scene, if, if you could. If you could imagine this scenario. The church is gathering, as, as it often did. In the home of one of its wealthier members, there's a meal that's going to be shared in association with the Lord's Supper. The gathering and the meal are provided through the generosity, supposedly, of wealthy patrons. And in those private rooms, there are a limited number of seats in the dining room. Guess who gets the seats? The closest friends, the colleagues, and and usually the socioeconomic peers of the wealthy patron offering the meal. Everybody else, they waited outside. Those who were seated inside got the better food, the choice wine, and more of it. Well, those who were on the outside got less, both in terms of quality and quantity. If you were on the outside, how did it make you feel? The practice made those who were poor feel not just poor, but excluded. Isolated. This at a meal that was supposed to say something about our oneness in the body. So listen then to what Paul says about this situation in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11. He says, when you come together, that's not the Lord's Supper you eat. When you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private meals, and as a result, one person outside remains hungry, and another inside is getting drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who already have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not. Do you hear the echoes of what's going on there? The the abuse of privilege and power? Disparity between the haves and and the have-nots amplified in this one place that's meant to show Equality and oneness. And so Paul calls out the behavior, and he makes a statement in 1 Corinthians 11, 29, that really ought to send chills up and down your spine. It says, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. On my Baptist upbringing, I was always taught that that verse meant that you don't take the bread and the cup frivolously. They represent Jesus, and if you do it recklessly or carelessly, you're in danger of judgment. That's not what this means at all. Look at the backdrop for the verse in the passage. This is about the abuse of power. And here's the key principle. Resources don't give us rights. Resources in the kingdom of God give us responsibilities. Let's move on. The conversion and how we see the gospel. I know we've asked this question before. We asked it recently. We ask it a lot, but we can't afford to get this one wrong. What is the gospel? And in the past, we've had you caucus in little groups and talk to each other. And, and I know that, that we're going to land on, in a few different places. What is the gospel? The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? I'm sure it is. But actually, that's the purchase of the gospel. That's what it took to achieve it. The gospel gospel is this. I place my faith in the Lord as as my Savior. I make it personal. Well, yeah, that's true too. But that's the initiation into the gospel. That's how it begins to be at work in your life. What is the gospel? The gospel is nothing less than the kingdom of God. Of God, The gospel is that somehow now in Jesus, in Jesus and only in Jesus, in his body and in his person and in his life, the kingdom is coming to earth. And that way of life, it can start now. Yes, it stretches on into all eternity, but it begins here. Jesus comes proclaiming this bold message that the kingdom of God is now available. It's available in him and through him. And if you want it, it can be yours. It's a free gift. It's grace. That's how we put it in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. How wonderful you are, God. But the very next line, your kingdom come. That's what we pray for. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, make what's up there come true down here. What does that look like? Well, if you want, strap yourself in because next week we begin Advent, right? And in Advent we get to read one of the most bold, audacious prayers. Actually, it's a song. It comes off the lips of a a young peasant Nazarene girl who sings what has come to be known through the pages of history as the Magnificat. And when Mary sings her Magnificat, she's singing one of the most revolutionary texts ever written. It's the inauguration of the kingdom. Let me just offer you a few stanzas. Speaking of God, Mary sings out... He's performed mighty deeds with his arms. He's scattered those who are proud. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He's lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things. And he's sent the rich away empty. And he's helped his servant Israel remember mercy. That's the kingdom. You know that William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, when he was sending out missionaries to India, told them never to read the Magnificat in public? Christians were already suspect in the country, so they were cautioned against what what they knew would be an inflammatory text. William Barclay said there's loveliness in the Magnificat, but that loveliness is dynamite. Christianity begets a revolution, and each man and woman that begets a revolution in the world. Mary sings the first verse, but Jesus picks up the chorus. You know, of course, there's a lot of revolutionary language in the Bible. Again, we we don't see it. We tend to spiritualize language around economics and power. But it sure is there. Jesus says, whoever has two coats, share one with somebody who has none. Whoever has food should do likewise. Again, in that same prayer that he offers, he said, forgive us our... Yeah, what word do you use there? The word is debts. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Again, we spiritualize it. It was a lot more concrete for Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist had been arrested. He's in prison. He's awaiting a death sentence. His, his faith is starting to wane a little bit. He's beginning to doubt. So he sends his messengers to Jesus. What he wants to know is, was I right? Is he really the Messiah? Do you remember what Jesus says in response? He says, tell John this, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the poor are hearing good news preached to them. What Jesus was getting at was was an idea, almost word for word, that had its roots in the Old Testament. It was a vision of justice and renewal, and it had a particular name, it had a beautiful name. It was called Jubilee. Jubilee. And here's what it meant. You'll know, of course, that there's something symbolic and beautiful about the number seven um, for for the Old Testament. Wholeness, completion, holiness. In seven days, God made the world. But the seventh day was something special, a day of rest, a day of celebration and renewal. And, And so they They built in that principle an idea of Sabbath for the land. Every seven years, the fields were to lie fallow to allow the land itself to heal and rejuvenate. They lived their life in these seven-year cycles. And then every seven cycles of seven years, so at the end of 49 years, would be the Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, three things would happen. First, all debts would be canceled. Hallelujah. <laughs> Second, all slaves would be set free. Realize that if you were a slave, you probably went into bondage because of oppression you couldn't provide for your family. All debts were canceled. All slaves were set free. Set free. And third, all the land that had been forfeit would revert to its original owner. Every provision in the law of Jubilee had something to do with poverty and resetting the system. It's almost like it was God's way of saying it's not good for this gap between those who have and those who don't have to keep getting wider and wider and wider. Now here's the thing. To the best of our knowledge, it never happened, the year of Jubilee. Why? Because those who were in power wouldn't let it happen. And so the promise of Jubilee gets attached to the Messiah. It's part of the expectation about what will happen when God's anointed one will come. Listen to what it sounds like. Isaiah 61. These verses that we often read associated with Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's that? The Jubilee. Fast forward several hundred years and imagine the scene in a dusty village called Nazareth when Jesus makes his very first public appearance. He strolls into a synagogue And when the appointed time comes in worship, he calls for the Isaiah scroll. And he reads those very words. The Jubilee proclamation. And then he rolls up the scroll and hands it back to the attendant. And he goes and he sits in his seat. And the gospel says that the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. You better believe they were. And guess what he said next? Today, the scripture is fulfilled. In a sense, the rest of the gospel lays out the principles of Jubilee. What does that mean as it gets lived out? And at the end of the gospel, when it comes time to start transferring some authority for the work of the kingdom from Jesus to this new little enterprise he's creating called the church, he passes the baton. He does it first to Peter. And you'll remember that moment, right? It comes right, right on the heels of, of Peter's bold proclamation. It says, we believe, we finally get it, Lord. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are you, Peter. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail. And I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Notice what it says and what it doesn't say, though. Jesus gives his church kingdom authority. Attend to the values, the obligations, the needs of the kingdom. Be kingdom people. Leave church building to me. I will build my church. And when we get them mixed up and we devote all of our time and loyalty and resources to church building and neglect the mandates of the kingdom, that's when we're most... In need of a conversion in how we see the gospel. We're out of time, and that's okay. There are only two little verses I want to leave with you about the last conversion. And the principle here is this if we as a church have been blessed with the capacity to overgather, then it's our responsibility to share. Here's the two scriptures. The first from the time of Exodus. You remember under God's provision for his people who were wandering lost in the wilderness, he would send a fresh supply of food every day. Manna, it was called. It says in Exodus 16 that when they measured it, they used an instrument called the omer. The one who gathered much didn't have too much. And the one who gathered a little didn't have too little. And everybody gathered just as much as they needed. Well, in writing to a church in Corinth, that image is preserved. These are words not just for an ancient church, but for the, the contemporary church. Our desire, 2 Corinthians 8, 13, our desire is not that others should or might be relieved while you are hard-pressed. Our desire is equality. At the present time, your plenty will be supplied by what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. For as it is written, the one who gathered much didn't have too much, The one who gathered little didn't have too little. In just a few minutes, we're going to gather our community meeting. And if you'd like a way of framing what we're going to do, we're going to talk about how much we've gathered and how much we anticipate gathering over the next year. And then we're going to talk about how it gets shared. I think it's one of the most exciting things that we do. I hope we do it well. And I hope uh, as we do it, there'll be a little scripture that just buzzes around in your head reminding us that, that we're kingdom people. When you seek first the kingdom, Jesus said, everything else gets added on. Let me pray for you and pray for all of us. God, I recognize and celebrate the legacy of your church, stretched vastly through the centuries and around the world. And God, it's done so very much. I, I recognize the beauty of this church, my church, and their generosity and and God their their freedom and their ability to, to love and be loved and to learn and be humble and grow so many good things. And if God there is an area in our lives as persons or as a gathered community that's in need of recalibrating. A conversion. God, would you take us to that place and give us courage to meet that moment and do what needs to be done? God, we we honor you in in our worship. We want to honor you in what happens when we leave. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.